0: Good morning. Uh, as Lee introduced, we are in the middle of talking about transformation. We're in, in Romans chapters 12 to 15, asking questions about what, is, what does real change look like? What does it look like? And um, I'm just going to start with, with this quote, right? You're not the boss of me, okay? You may not remember. This, this is, it sounds awkward, right? It, does, it just doesn't seem grammatically correct. But I remember the very first time that I heard this phrase uttered, okay? It was, um, it was in the 1980s. I don't remember the exact date, but it was the 1980s. I was at First Baptist Church, Pinellas Park, where I was every Sunday morning, okay? And, and, um, and at our church, we had, we had it was, again, this was 1980s, we had a bus ministry, okay? So we had, we had a bus or two that would go out from the church, would pick up kids and bring them to church. And also being the 1980s, it was a much more judgmental time, Right? And so, so we, those of us who were righteous and pious and didn't arrive on buses, we sort of looked down on those who did. I, I, it's a confession. I'm not proud of it. It's just the reality. But I remember one particular Sunday morning during Junior Kids Church, much like our kid's life, there was a young man there, and um, he wasn't doing what the Junior Kids Life Church leader wanted him to do. And, uh, and, and the Junior Kids Life leader was a man named Mr. Vanderpool, okay? And I remember Mr. Vanderpool for many reasons, one of which was just the sheer size of the man. He was intimidating to anyone, let alone intimidating to like a 10-year-old boy. Okay? But this kid would not do what Mr. Vanderpool was trying to get him to do. And, and I remember Mr. Vanderpool doing everything in his power to, to try and coerce him and, and trying to just, just gently coax him until finally Mr. Vanderpool had had it, okay? and he was done with this kid. And I remember this kid standing up, okay, and putting his fist in Mr. Vanderpool's face and saying, you're not the boss of me. And from what happened next, probably we couldn't get away with in 2018, okay? (laughs) But I don't think the kid ever came back. I don't think he ever rode the bus to church again, okay? This is a tragedy. This is not a a, a happy story, okay? But, But... but I remember that phrase, and I don't know why, but that phrase stood out in my mind. You're not the boss of me. And I thought it was just something that this kid said, until lo and behold, like 15, 20 years later, there's a television show named Malcolm in the Middle, and the, the theme song, the, like the intro song, the name of that song is You're Not the Boss of Me. Okay? There's like this emphasis on, on of me. Like, I am, I'm, I've got self determination. I am. In charge not you okay and lo and behold over the last 10 years okay, over the last 10 years weird crazy stuff by the way but but um tracking of all uses of different phrases on internet chat boards in different places the use of you're not the boss of me has quadrupled in the last 10 years on, 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 like it's percentage wise on the internet it's a bizarre thing that they know that right doesn't that make you feel weird like everything you've ever posted anywhere is getting logged into some kind of crazy computer? But but people saying you're not the boss of me is is actually becoming much more and more prevalent for us culturally. Okay? So it's like it's almost like culturally we've we've gathered we've 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 gathered in like this 10-year-old rebellious fist to the sky saying I'm in charge, you're not. Okay? And it runs, rebellion runs through our culture, right? Like, these are my heroes growing up, and who are they? The rebels, right? Like, the rebels are the good guys, okay? But, but, but I grew up with these sorts of heroes. Um, 20th century sociologists point to this very image, this very image as the inception of what we now just sort of commonly call the teenage rebellion, like, rebellion for its own, its own sake. Not rebellious, rebellion with a cause, but just rebellion for the sake of rebellion. And it, it, it's become ingrained in our culture. We celebrate it even throughout history, right? And, and there's, you know, William Wallace and, and, and the, the, the rebellion that's led. And we even point to it and say, like, it's just and it's right. And it's part of the fabric even for us culturally. Okay? The spirit of 76. Okay, the spirit of '76 is this, is this iconic image, okay, of, of marching into rebellion, marching into rebellion, and, and perhaps, you, know, the signing of the Declaration of Independence is this, kind of this ultimate American moment. We just blew stuff up this week to celebrate it, right? Like, it, but, but in essence, in essence, it's an act of rebellion. Right? we hold these truths to be self-evident that you're not the boss of me, right? This is rebellion. Rebellion is a part of our identity. It's sort of it's sort of who we are. Um, we 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 don't even think consciously about it much. We just sort of assume it. It's in the air that we breathe. We are, our, our identity as Americans, as people living in, at this point in time, this, in this point in history is self-determination. Okay? And anyone who tries to tell me otherwise is an enemy, and an enemy that deserves to be thrown off. Okay? Well, as you can guess, as you can guess, the Bible's got something to say about that. Okay? It's got something to say about that. And and we don't like to mess around here with what the Bible says. We want to be be straight and forthright with it. And today we're going to talk about transformed submission. What does it look like to submit in a way that's in line with what we've seen in the book of Romans to this point And, 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 and in line with the kind of change that Paul's writing to the church in Rome about? Remember, to set the stage, the church in Rome was a bit of a church divided. You had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who were trying to reintegrate with one another, but they were coming against one another in some real ways. And, and Paul, looking at the church in Rome as a key place, heads into the, or he writes to the church in Rome in anticipation of eventually going there. He had not been there at the point he wrote the letter. But he writes in anticipation of coming to Rome. And in that letter, he he tries to create some common ground. And and his common ground begins with a common problem. This is just to to remind us of some things we've seen over the last few weeks. A common problem. And the the common problem is sin. We all sin. We have it. It's an identity that we carry that keeps us from God. But then he also says, "But, but we're not just bound by a common problem. We're bound by a common solution to that problem. It's only through Christ and his work on the cross that we, can, that we can undo the impact of sin. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile. It, it's one solution for all people. We're all in this together, and we all have a part to play. And he, then he says there in, in, in chapter 12, it's in verse 2, but be transformed. Put your, get in a place where the transformation that God is bringing about through his son Jesus Christ is happening in your life. And, and that's where we find ourselves today, and we're talking about submission in, in ways where, where it's, it's going to be a little bit different, but we're going to be in Romans 13. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans 13. We're going to jump in there in just a moment. <clears throat> but Paul says, be transformed, and we're asking, okay, what does that look like? Paul gives them examples, and that's why we're camped in chapters 12 through 15. He gives them examples of places in their culture, in their moment, that, that, that transformation had practical implications for the way they were going to live. And because we believe God's revealed himself clearly through the word, we would say the same thing, that God, God through his, his servant Paul, has in, in the, the inspired writing of, of this, this letter, has given us a moment to set, step back and look at this issue of submission. What does it look like? What does it mean to submit in a transformed way? A way that's really different from what we do naturally, a way that really runs runs counter to the cultural um, flow and, and the way that, that we're told we ought to behave. So let's take a look at it. You're there in Romans chapter 13? Romans chapter 13, it says this: It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, okay? This is straightforward, right? Some, some basic just observations about this. Every person be subject, be in submission to the governing authorities, those that are in authority, Okay? There's, he, he says, that authority is established by God. Now, at certain times, we go, absolutely, amen. And in other times, we go, are you sure about that? <laughs> are we really sure that this authority is God's authority? Perhaps at the highest levels, but, but sometimes at the very local levels, right? You may have an authority in your life, and you're quite certain that they are not God's authority. Well, Paul's going to continue to talk about this. And we're going to wrestle with it a little bit. But this question of authority, what Paul's argument is, is that, that the authority that exists is instituted by God. So if we take the authority that's above us, and we look to the authority that's above them, and we look to the authority that's above them, and above them, and above them, and above them, ultimately, who's in charge? This is Paul's starting point. Ultimately, all authority rests with God. So he says here, those who resist follow the chain, right? Those who resist are resisting God. Who? All right, I know there's there's probably like nine thousand exceptions running through your mind right now, and we'll get there, okay? But this is a starting point. Verse three: For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? then do what is good and you will receive his approval. This is this is like proverbial wisdom, right? Like if you don't want to get sideways with the law, don't go blowing up pumpkins, okay? Like if, if you want to avoid that kind of trouble, stay within the boundaries. You don't want a speeding ticket, stay below the speed limit. Simple, okay? Verse three, verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. Wait a minute, <laughs> we're back to this place. How are How are sometimes, yeah, okay, fine, but how, are, how is all authority God's servant? But if you do wrong, he goes on, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Boy, there's a lot in verse 4 that I'm not comfortable with, right? We're back in the midst of this struggle because, because I look at the authority that's, that's that exists in my world, and, and probably the thing I like the least is the, authority that, or is the power that the authority has to bear the sword, to, to enact violence. I don't like this. I don't like the fact that it exists, period, let alone the fact that Paul actually takes it and he positions it in a place where he says that it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless when authority uses force. It's not meaningless. Now, he didn't say that it's necessarily good and righteous, but he did say it's not in vain. It's not empty. It's not void of purpose. Okay? Keep reading with me, verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Essentially, he says look, two two reasons. One, it's in your self interest. It's in your self interest. Avoid getting sideways with the authorities because they've got the power to punish you. But also, he adds this because of your conscience. Avoid, Avoid this because you can then live in a way that doesn't have you constantly in fear. Of the authority, live in such a way that you do everything in your power to stay on the right side of the law. This is your obligation. This is your task. Now, there's there's probably an awful lot of cultural context as with everything wrapped up in this. If you remember the if you, if you remember, and if, if this is the first time you're hearing it, what had happened with the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman Church is that the Jews had been tossed out of the city of Rome. Okay, they'd been forced out. They'd been forced to leave. And they were gone for somewhere between five to ten years before a new Roman emperor was established, and ironically, it was Nero, okay, not a good guy, which is going to add some, some flavor to this as well. It was Nero who allowed the, Rome, the, the, the Jewish uh, Christians to come back into Rome. And it seems like, again, you have to do some, some reading between the lines here, but it seems like... One of the reasons that the Jews were kicked out of Rome in the first place was because a lot of what we call messianic agitation. There was an awful lot of talk about the Messiah and the throwing off of the government. And if you're Rome and you're the government and people are talking about a Messiah who's going to come and who's going to throw out the government, okay, you see what happens? So they said, "Mm, no, you guys go away. You're a threat. Okay? So it's possible also even here that Paul's saying, look, be careful with the things. There are, there's going to be certain things, and again, we'll, hit up, we'll talk about exceptions for a few minutes, but there's going to be certain things where the government may say, you must do this, and in a clear conscience, the Bible would tell us, we can't. Okay, We can't. But before we get there, what Paul's saying is there's an awful lot of things that go on that are just part of social order. And social order is a good, God-ordained thing. And God uses the governments and the powers of this world to keep it. And when we have social order, we live at peace and we have a greater opportunity to flourish with one another. And we can, we can for the sake of the gospel, we can carry out our mission as ministers of Christ in, in relative peace. Okay, This is for your benefit. Right? But he says, you know, you pay taxes and this is all good. In verse 7, he ends his section with this. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Right? Respect those who are in a position where respect is, needs to be given to them. Honor to those who are in a position where honor needs to be given to them. Right? Now, there's, like I said, there's all this stuff in there that, that we don't like. There's stuff in there that just sort of, it, it hits me in a place where I go, yeah, but. An awful lot of yeah, buts in this. And, there's, and I think there's a couple reasons for that. Let me talk through a couple of them with you. And The first is this, okay? The first is this, and this is maybe, you know, ripped from the headlines. But this passage, Romans 13, was never written um, as a justification for those in authority to impose something on people that they governed over. Remember, the context of this is written to people who had no power. They were the oppressed, and it was, it was for them to understand their position and how to live as transformed people given that position. So to take Romans 13 and to lord it over others and say, as an authority you need to do what I say, is a complete abuse of this passage. That's not what it's saying, okay? It's, it's, it's not talking about, or it's very tempting when we're in charge to use it, but it's also very inappropriate. It's not talking, it's not speaking to those who have the power. It's speaking to those who are, who are powerless, who have very little agency and, and, and ability to change their circumstances. Okay? We must keep that in mind with this section. But also, there's something else about this, and it's that what we experience in civic life is very different from what, really, almost anything that the Bible talks about. Okay? In the scriptures, you basically get sort of two, two ways of looking at, at civic relationship, and it's all sort of based on the, the, the nation of Israel and where they sat when it came to power. And so on one side... Okay, when the Bible talks about civic duty on one side, you get an awful lot of what we call theocracy or, or government by God, religious rule. Okay? Theocracy. And, and what that essentially meant was that, that civic life and religious life were like this, okay? They were interwoven. And so the law of the land was also the law of God. Thus, the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law and all those things we see in the Old Testament, those things were, were just as much, were just much national civic law as they were religious law. Well, we sort of, in today, we have a very different view of these things, right? Like, it's built right, the non-establishment clause is built right into our Constitution. So we have this view that says, no, we're not supposed to establish any one religious rule, okay? There's a lot we could say about that, but I'm not a poli guy, I'm, I'm hopefully a Bible guy. So I just want to tell you that, that that was when the Bible talks about civic duty, sometimes it has that theocracy in mind, Okay? In other times, you have the Jews, what we call the Jews of the Diaspora, which is that they're out living away from the national protection, and they're living um, really uh, under some sort of oppressive ruler, okay? and it happens throughout the Old Testament and here in the New Testament is what we see. They, they, were, they were not self-governing. Theocracy really wasn't an option for them because they had some power over them that was saying, you're You're not on your own to govern yourselves. We're in charge. You pay us taxes. We provide you with what we think is reasonable. And so they had to deal with these kind of two separate ways of thinking. Again, today, the freedoms that we experience, the the, the opportunity that we have to participate in civic life is just so very different from what they would have experienced. So the thought, okay, the thought that, that, that they could raise their hand and vote yes in favor of an emperor was completely foreign to them. So the idea of participation in their government, particularly for, for anyone with a Jewish background living abroad in a city like Rome, it's just, it's just we have to be very difficult trying to compare the circumstances of the first, of first century Rome with the f- circumstances of 21st century United States. Okay? Is that, that am I being fair, I hope? Okay, it's, it's obviously very different, and at, but yet at the same time, but yet at the same time, this is saying things to us about the way that we submit to authority or don't. And it's saying something, some things to us about what we ought to do, how we ought to be in the midst of this. So I want to I present some things, some things that, that I believe it just says here, and how they, what they have to do with us. And the first thing is this: let's acknowledge our problem, because the problem in the first century and the problem today are the same. Okay, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. Okay, our problem in 21st century America. Intertwined with all of that social stuff, all the songs we heard, the story that, that we heard from Chris, the, 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 the stories we tell in our movies and in our national heritage, it kind of boils down to this. And if we're just going to be honest, I don't want anyone else telling me what, what I can and can't do, right? I don't. So I, I have this sort of belief that if I'm right about something, I ought to be in charge, Okay? If I'm right about something, I, everything ought to be the way that I believe it should be. And this is something that that's, I think is just sort of true about us. Now, we might vary on how much power or, or, or energy we're willing to invest in that cause, but if we, if we all are just sort of honest, we want to be in charge because we think that we're right, Okay? Because we think that we're right. And if everyone did it the way we thought they should do it, we'd all be better off. Right? We've got solutions. Why isn't anyone listening to us? Okay? Well, this isn't really a new idea, as I've said. And, and Paul had already addressed this, so I'm going to quickly look at some things that, that Scott and Rick over the last two weeks have looked at. But look at Romans. What Paul, right before he says this about government, look what he says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Like transformed people, people who've come into, in, into touch with the the saving life of Christ, who's undone their sin, they live in harmony. Okay? They live in harmony. He says in, in verse 18 of chapter 12, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yeah, but what about the guys who, who think this or that about taxes? Or this or that, even about issues that we might care deeply about, like protecting the life of the unborn. Do I have to live peaceably with them? What about those who disagree with me when it comes to our borders or our government? And it's it's the responsibility that maybe had to protect the citizenship, the citizenry. Like, do I have to live peaceably with them? Well, Paul seems to be plain. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave a vengeance to God. Like, the, he's, he's making this point that, that we, we, we have this tendency, and our tendency is to try and make sure that, that where it matters to me, I'm in charge. When, when I believe something is right, that means I ought to be the one setting the rules. And so I get heavily invested. Maybe my investment actually turns into to time and energy and money and muscle, but it could just be emotional investment. And so I'm spinning my, spending my time, spinning my tires, trying to persuade everyone around me that they're wrong and I'm right. But I just, can we just confess this to one another? We have a tendency. This is already established. It's because of sin in us. And the tendency is, we want to make our own path. We, want, we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. And it causes strife and division it causes a lack of harmony here's the second thing i think that that paul says here is that submission to god means submission to human authority i don't like this but i i believe it's said god's purposes are accomplished no matter who's in charge no matter who's in charge now, this is, again, it's a tough pill to swallow, but there's biblical precedent for this. When the children of Israel were in, were in um, exile, they were in Babylon, and you had sort of warring empires with one another, there was a man named Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, he gets, he gets called, but Cyrus was the, the emperor of Persia, and the Persians take over. Now, Cyrus was a bad guy, Okay? Take everything that we've had over the last few years and, 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 and about people's character and whether or not they're fit to lead and all those discussions and conversations. Wherever you may land on that, Cyrus was worse. Okay? He had absolute authority, and he used it to party. Okay? To party and to conquer other people. That was Cyrus. All right? Now, I want to, a few things that I want to say about this. While the children of Israel were in exile... The prophet Isaiah is given uh, given a word, and it says, and this is what's said in Isaiah 45. It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Did you catch that? Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Do you see what's being said this is a bad guy, Cyrus, okay? He's a bad guy in history. But God was, had anointed him to do something. He was using him. And, and, and it goes on there. I'm going to jump down a couple of verses to verse four. It says this, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you, now this is Cyrus, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. You catch this? This is God still speaking to Cyrus, and look at what he says. I've chosen you because I have something else happening behind the scenes, something, Cyrus, that you're completely unaware of. And in fact, this whole thing is gonna play out. You're gonna die, and it's probably gonna be an afterthought for you. But Cyrus, as rotten as he was, was God's servant in order to bring the first people of Israel back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. It was, it was Cyrus, Cyrus the awful, that God used. You see, it, whether or not someone is, is righteous, whether or not they're righteous, doesn't dictate whether or not God's Using them in history. Whether or not they are right with God, it doesn't disqualify them from being God's agent of change. Now, again, you ready? I don't don't like that. I don't like that. I want God to use people, you ready for this? Who are like me, who always share my values. I want people, I want God to use people that, that, that are sympathetic to my concerns. People that I can just get behind wholeheartedly and support them without question. But it's not how things have ever operated with God. So we catch that? The second thing? We submit to God by submitting to human authority. Okay? The righteousness or unrighteousness of the, of the authority doesn't excuse rebellion on our part. The third thing here, if our problem is, is our sinful rebellion and the, the principle is that, is that we have submission is, is asked of us no matter who the authority is, this means that we do give respect and honor when it's appropriate. And we participate at whatever level we, we can, whatever level our conscience allows in civic life, we participate but then we release to God without obsessing about power, without obsessing about control, without obsessing about how we're going to avenge our latest political defeat. Are you following this with me? You see, we submit not only when it's good and convenient for us, not only when we see an alignment between our values and the value of the authority, we submit all the time. Okay? We submit. And we submit because God is using agents to carry out his purposes. Things that things that we can't, they themselves can't fathom, let alone us. We can't see it. But he's doing it because his, his kingdom it wasn't found in Persia, and it wasn't found in Rome. It hasn't been found throughout the centuries. And it's, it's still not about political power today. That's not his kingdom. His kingdom is in the hearts of those who've called on his son. That's where his kingdom rests. And submission in his kingdom is submission to him. Submission in our hearts is submission to God. Are you with me? He says it here just a few places in, in, in verse 1 and, sorry, verse 7. I, Messed up the reference on the second one. But let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let everyone be in submission to the governing authorities. Pay what is owed to them, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is, this ought, this is transformational submission. This is how, how someone who's come into to touch with the life of Christ goes about living in civil society. And what do we get out of it? Like, okay, so what's the end of this? Well, we wind up with the freedom to let it go. Okay? Don't start singing on me, okay? But to let it go. So we're not crippled any longer by trying to control our world and have our way. This is, this is the benefit. You see, here's, this, is, this is what I, I firmly believe on this. Ready? I firmly believe that the, the benefit of all of this is to the kingdom of God. Because once we've transferred our worry and concern from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God, we are now free to live as the missionary agents of God in our world. We're no longer bound to try and grasp and grapple with political power and political ends and means, but we are free to bring about flourishing and and love and compassion for our neighbor for the sake of the God who came to earth to die for them. And we're no longer distracted from that message. It's why I believe so strongly that, and and Paul, I think, is writing so clearly that we can't just step around it and go, "Yeah, I don't have to deal with that one. I don't have to. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bow out right now. I'm just, I'm not gonna obey," because what happens is that in the agency of our own hearts, rebellion takes root, and when rebellion takes root, as Paul's writing here, rebellion is not. We can never just isolate it to just that one instance. Rebellion goes all the way up the chain in our life. Okay, So he says in chapter 13, those who resist will incur judgment. Is that earthly judgment? Is it heavenly judgment? Quite frankly, it doesn't make it plain. I think it's safe to say that if you rebel against the government, the government's probably going to punish you. It probably is earthly. And I think it's safe to say that it's consistent with the passage that God also is looking at you and going, this isn't what I had in mind. Would you have no fear? The one who is in authority, then do good. You'll receive his approval. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You see, we can live with a free conscience, free to to live and do and be who God asked us to be within that civic context when we're not worried about constantly looking over our shoulder for what the authority is going to do. All right, so what about the exceptions? Okay, okay. And always goes to the Nazis, right? Like, what about the exceptions? Okay? First thing I would say is this. There's a temptation in this, and I've got to be honest about what I'm, how I'm tempted, and I'm going to share this with you. I think the temptation is for us to make our circumstances, the, we always want to look for the exception because we want our circumstance to be the exception. Because if my circumstance is the exception, I don't have to obey. You with me? So I'm always looking for all the exceptions. I've got my eyes fixed on the exception because I'm trying to figure out whether or not I'm living in the exception. And if I'm living in the ex- exception, I don't have to obey what I don't like. Can we, uh, just, can we just be honest about this? Beware of that temptation, please. Okay, Please beware of that temptation. Now, in 60 seconds... <laughs> there's a couple thousand years of church history and just war theory, okay? And there there may very well be reasons where it becomes necessary through the use of force, okay? But, okay, but a couple things. Number one, remember when Paul was writing this, he was living in an exceptional time. He was living in 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 an exceptional time. He was writing to people who'd been kicked out of their homes, and had just been able to return and what we know is that within a decade that very emperor who had let them return was going to start executing them in mass the christians okay it was this very thing about submitting to the authorities was put to the test it was put to the test in their lives and they paid for it with their lives that the message of christ is one of submission okay So when we start to talk about exceptions, and again, please hear me say this, I'm not telling you that there's never an exception, but please understand with me that the author here, Paul, following the example of his Savior, was was more willing to lay down his life than to fight for his rights. Okay, He was living in an exceptional time. The second thing is this, is that most of history is not the exception. Okay, Can we just agree on that? Most of history is not the exceptional time. Of course, there are outlying times. Of course, we have examples even in our own culture, our own point in time. But but by and large, by and large, we are living at a point in time where we experience unprecedented freedom. We, talking to us in the room. We. It doesn't mean we don't advocate, right? I'm not not saying just just step out and do nothing. But what I am trying to get us to, to consider is this. What's the root of our rebellion? Why? Why are we resisting? And most of history, most of history is not the exception, including our own personal history. There may be things that are unfair, but this passage is not a justification to rebel because something unfair has happened. Paul's arguing and he's saying, be in subjection to the authority. There's more going on in the authority than you can reckon with. And the last thing, and I think this is the critical point, is that the whole point of this is that God is still in control. He's just as in control today as he was five years ago. And just as much in control as 50, 500, 5,000 years ago. God's control is unwavering. He's unwavering. And it's why in the, the larger scheme of things, It's why a a spirit of rebellion, maybe not necessarily an individual act of rebellion, but why a spirit of rebellion is inconsistent with who he is. Because a spirit of rebellion says, God, you can't handle what's going on in the world right now. I've got to take control. So if you wouldn't mind stepping aside while I handle this situation, we'll all be better off, thanks. Are there exceptions? Absolutely, but, but we're, we get so focused on them that we miss the bigger picture. We miss the bigger picture. And then just one last thought on this, but is there any greater example of suffering under the power of an unjust authority than that of Christ himself? The one that we, we, we've taken his name? He laid down his life in complete innocence to an unjust authority who was colluding with religious authorities and he he laid down his life for us. He made a way. He made a way through. This act. This is the gospel message. At the heart of the gospel message, it says no, 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 no. Rebellion isn't the answer, rebellion is the problem. We've rebelled against God. And in order to have it right, we have to have a sacrifice. And Christ made that sacrifice by laying down his life. Thank God. Thank God he didn't do what I do in my flesh, which is shake my fist and say, you're not the boss of me. Thank God he made a way. Would you pray with me? God, um, we just stop and um, I I confess that without even thinking about it, I just naturally want to go my own way. It's just what I do all the time. And so, God, I, um, as we stop this morning and look at your words, and, God, we know that, um, that there are people in our world who are hurting they're hurting because of unjust rule and unjust authority, and God, I just confess I don't know how to make sense of all of that. I don't know how the scales get balanced. But God, I do ask that you would, you would open my eyes to the rebellion in my heart, to the the times in the. The places where I, I shake my fist and say, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to do this. To the places where I, I sneak and I hide and I subvert. God, I just ask today that, that uh, you draw us more and more in touch with you. That the work of, of changing us and transforming us that you began would continue. Um, that we would participate with you as, you as you shape us more and more into the image of your son. God, help make us people who, who see your hand. And we, um, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.